0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 20 this morning. You can find it on page 978, and the Bibles provided in the chairs. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we want to give you a Bible, and so right over at the welcome table we have a Bible that's there just for you. That's, that's your gift uh, from us for being here. Just consider it a Christmas gift. Take that uh, on your way out, or or now if you'd like. Um, we love the Word. We think it's the best thing that we can give you, and uh, which is, explains a lot why I preach the way that I do. I, I work through books of the Bible. Um, a book at a time, section by section, so that we can dig deep and really unpack what it has for us and how we're to live in light of it. So that kind of leads me to the question, what does it matter? right? What does it matter? Why does God care how I live or what I do? I mean, doesn't God have bigger things to think about than how truthful I am, what I say, or the way I say it to other people? Why does he care whether or not I harbor anger or bitterness in my heart against someone? Why does he care about the way that I do my job? Why does he care whether or not I forgive other people? Why does God want to ruin my fun? Why does he demand that I do things that are hard and uncomfortable when there's all of these other things that are so easy and bring me instant pleasure? Why can't I just do those? Have you ever asked yourself questions like these? I mean, just thinking about the Christian life and why we're called to live the way we do. Do you you find yourself questioning God in this way? Why do you care how I live? Why does it matter what I do? Why does the way that we live our lives matter to God? Well, I need to start out by saying this. It is not because we earn our salvation. It's not because we earn our way to God. God doesn't require from us obedience so that we can satisfy some standard by our moral character, by our good works, by our religious activities. God's not saying, you must elevate yourself to this level in order to be with me. And nor is God saying, you need to elevate yourself to this level to stay with me. Oftentimes we get that wrong. No, salvation is a gift of God's grace through faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast before God. Salvation is all of God and nothing of me. Our salvation is entirely the result of God's work and not our own. But on the flip side, that doesn't then mean that we can live however we want to live and do whatever we want to do. And it doesn't really matter because I have professed faith in Christ. And so whether I give myself over to every kind of sin, whether I live however I want to live, it doesn't matter because I'm clean because Jesus has covered my sin and I'll just go on doing whatever I want to do until kingdom come. No, the ethical commands that God gives us flows out of the theological truth of what God has already done for us and in us. You've got to get this. The reason why God calls us to no longer live like the world is because God has made us a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1 through 3, we've seen this over and over again. God says, listen, I I chose you. I adopted you. I redeemed you. I forgave you. I gave you an eternal inheritance in Christ. I have sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit. I have given you wisdom and knowledge of me. I have made you alive. I have given you new life in Christ. I I have raised you up and I have seated you at the right hand of my heavenly throne in Christ Jesus. I've done all of this for you. I have united you to Christ and to each other so that together, as you live your lives growing in maturity, together you might be the trophy. You might be the display of my wisdom and my glory and my grace to the world around you. I've showered my incomprehensible love on you. And because that is true, because I have made you a new creation, live as a new creation. Live in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you have received from me. Live in your new identity. Be who you now really are in Jesus Christ. Because that is what we've seen over and over and over again in Ephesians 1 through this point, 4. 4. And it's a truth that we so desperately need to grasp. You see, if you don't truly remember who you are and what you have become in Jesus Christ, when we come to these ethical requirements of how we should then live, we will inevitably view them wrongly. As a means to our own salvation or a means of maintaining our salvation. Or we will look at them as God's just trying to ruin my fun. And this life is better than what God is calling me to. But these commands are given in light of the grace that we've already received, that we've already seen, and they call us to live in that new identity, to be who we now are in Christ, to reflect and adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved us, to reflect the nature and character of our Lord and Savior to the world. God calls us to be united I mean, we've been talking about this. Unity, the importance of unity. God calls us to be united, you have to recognize, because God is one. And because of the gospel, because of God's work of salvation, he has united us in Christ and he has united us together. Therefore, we are to be united. That's why he calls us to unity. And here we're going to get into purity. God calls us to live lives of purity because God is pure and he is without sin. And the sacrifice of Christ on the cross has paid for our sin. We have been washed pure by his blood. See, God's nature and character and the very nature and character of the gospel are displayed by our unity and by our seeking to live pure lives. So we have to remember that all of these ethical commands, these ethical commands to live your lives, they, they come out of who God is and what he has already done for us in Jesus Christ. You've got to grasp that. If you don't, you will get these commands wrong. And the central truth that God calls us to take hold of this morning in Ephesians 4, 17 through 20 is this. Do not live lives of impurity. Learn Christ. Do not live in impurity learn Christ. And to do this, we're presented with two paths. The path of futility and the path of Christ. So let's read it this morning in Ephesians 4:17 through 20. It says, "Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding" alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Here we are presented with two options this morning, the path of futility and the path of Christ. One begins with hard hearts and leads to futile minds, death, judgment, and reckless abandon. And the other, from trusting submission to renewed minds, to life, reconciliation, and grateful obedience. And so first, let's examine the path of futility. No one is at any point in time in their lives, neutral when it comes to God. God is rightly like a fork in the road of our lives and we have an option to go down one path or the other. We will at any point in our lives be going down either the path of futility or the path of Christ. You can't do both. And so we have to check ourselves along the way. And here Paul is writing to faithful believers of the church in Ephesus and he says, Now, therefore... In light of everything that I have told you so far in chapters 1 through 4, everything that I've said regarding God's gracious work of salvation to make you a new creation and to unite you together as a display of his glory, therefore I say and I testify, I insist in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. It says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. You must no longer mimic their pattern of life to follow in their lifestyle of the unbelieving world around you. Your everyday life, the ebb and flow that characterizes who you are, your life should be different from that of the world. Prior to God's grace, chapter 2, 1 through 3, reminds us that we all once walked dead in our sin. That was the path that we walked on. That we were following the course of this world, that we were tempted, following the devil, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But when God saved us by his grace... That together, according to chapter 2, verse 10, we all have become God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? That we should walk in them. That our walk is now defined by God's workmanship. The fact that we've been created in Christ and that God has prepared these good works in advance for us to walk in them. And then he urges us, in light of God's call of salvation being effective, in in light of the fact that God has made us a new creation, he urges us in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. He said, you've been given this calling, this effective working calling. You are God's workmanship. You are created anew in Christ. Therefore, walk in such a way as to reflect that call. And that call runs in the opposite direction of the former life that we once lived apart from Christ. The danger of a professing believer to continue to walk down the former path that the Gentiles do is that it leads us further and further and further into futility and further away from Christ. These Gentiles walk in futility. If you don't know what that word means, it means emptiness. It means being without purpose or meaning. It's a life of frustration that in the end leads nowhere. It's a useless life that's wasted on trivialities. It's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes was saying, that a life without God is meaningless. It's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. It all comes to nothing. For all of your striving and for all of your effort, regardless regardless of how successful you are, regardless of your wealth, regardless of your worldly accomplishments, regardless of all the precious memorabilia that you have accumulated for yourself in a matter of moments, when you stand before the God of the universe, your maker, all of those things will mean absolutely nothing in light of him. That's what he's saying. All that you once held dear, all that you found your identity in, will be brought to nothing. Living as those without God is futile. So don't walk that path. And so how do we avoid walking this path of futility? We want to stay off it, right? The only way to to stay off it is to know that we're on it and to turn, right? And so it starts with the origin it starts with a hardness of heart. Look again at the text. What does a godless world or why does a godless world walk in the futility of their minds? Well, because they are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. Well, why were they darkened and alienated? Well, because of the ignorance that is in them. And why was their ignorance in them? Due to their hardness of heart. So That path of futility begins with a hardness of heart. So what then is hardness of heart? Well, hardness of heart is an obstinate rejection of God's truth. All right? It it could be anything from its extreme form being this outward, abject defiance towards God, this deep-seated, evident hatred of God. But it could also be much more mild. It could be stubbornness. Towards God could be just kind of closed-minded towards the things of God or a dullness towards the things of God. The hard-hearted live in denial. They deny God. They deny that their lives are in contradiction to his word or when confronted with their sin, they deny that they've done anything wrong. Denial is very closely akin to hardness of heart. They deny when they've sinned against God. The hard-hearted, are, they're not teachable. They don't want to learn. They don't feel like they have anything to learn. They don't feel like they have anything to gain by anything that you have to say, and so they refuse to listen. The hard-hearted are not accountable. They refuse accountability from other people. At its most basic level, hard-heartedness is saying no to God and at the same time, time saying yes to my selfish desires. You get that? At its most basic level, hardness of heart is this. It's simply saying no to God and yes to my selfish desires. Have you ever done that? Have you ever in any instance of your life said no to God and yes to my selfish desires? If you, if you haven't, you are in denial. Therefore, you have thus proven you are hard-hearted. Okay? We all have. We've all placed one foot on that path. Human nature in our depravity wants to automatically say no to God. We have this natural inclination, nation, this natural bent to say no to God. Now Martin Luther described sinful human nature as a human being curved upon itself. Now, I love that. It's curved upon itself, that apart from God, human beings curl around themselves, right? They're just focused upon themselves. They're self-absorbed. They're looking solely to myself. I'm curving around. I'm not looking at the world around me. I'm looking to myself. Now, perhaps the fetal position is an expression of our sinful nature in light of that. I mean, my kids sin at a very early age, and they love to curl up in a ball, so it makes me wonder, But our pride and our self-centeredness cause our hearts to be hardened. And as a result, it leads us to choose ourselves rather than God. We become inverted, distorted upon ourselves. And as a result, we live lives of futility. Anytime we say no to God, to the God who made us, to the God who sustains us, to the God who through faith in Jesus Christ has saved us, then we are on that path of futility. Anytime you say no to God. And the more we say no to God, and yes to ourselves apart from God, then the further and further down that path we go, hardening our hearts as we go until all we do is say no to God. So hardness of heart is one step on the path of futility. It begins with our willful defiance of God. But the next, it doesn't end there. The next is the futility of the mind. If you look back at verse 18, the hardness of heart is the reason for the ignorance that is in them. Now this doesn't mean that they don't know anything, that they're just dumb. That they are incapable of learning. What this is, what it says ignorance, is a willful ignorance towards God. They refuse to acknowledge God and to learn about him. They remain in ignorance towards his nature, towards his character, towards his purposes and promises in the world. In his commentary on this verse, Peter O'Brien says that Paul's view of knowledge is largely determined by the Old Testament. And so think about this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right? He says, to know God means to be in a close personal relationship with him. Knowledge has to do with an obedient and grateful response of the whole person, not simply intellectual assent. Saying, listen, it's not enough for us to just say, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But are your mind, your will, your emotions, your whole person living in obedience and gratitude towards God? That's true knowledge. That's true wisdom. Likewise, ignorance is a failure to be grateful and obedient. It describes someone's total stance, and this includes their emotions, their wills, their actions, not just one's mental response. And so, such ignorance is culpable, it makes them responsible. It's not an excuse for their sin, though it is often understood that way in contemporary thought. How many people have you known that just like they excuse away another person's sins? Well, they don't know any better. Well, no. They've given themselves completely towards failing to acknowledge God, failing to be grateful, failing to be obedient. It doesn't matter how much you know or how little you know. If you know one thing that you shouldn't do, right, no matter how ignorant you are of everything else that Scripture says, if you know that, you know, you shouldn't lie. If you know that that's true, that you shouldn't lie, and you know that that comes from God, right, but you lie anyway, it doesn't matter that you can't get the Trinity right. It doesn't matter how much you understand compatibilistic freedom. Okay? or infralapsarianism, or superlapsarianism. I'm saying things that I'm hoping you don't understand because I'm trying to make a point here, right? It doesn't matter how much or little you know. If you know what is true and you fail to do it in any point, you're doing that with your whole being and you're culpable for it. You're responsible. This ignorance that is in them. He says it's in them due to their hardness of heart. So they bear the blame squarely on their shoulders, Now that willful ignorance towards God leads to having their minds become darkened. Okay, They they are darkened in their understanding. Their mindset has been drastically affected by their resistance towards God, which means their thinking, their disposition, their attitudes, their impulses, their willful desires have become darkened so that they become blind to the truth. The light of their understanding of God has gone out and they are in darkness, unable and unwilling to grasp the truth of God and to find any glory in it. Now again, it's not that they can't hear the gospel and understand the gospel. It's not that they can't read the words of scripture and make no sense of them. No, it's that they find no glory in them. They find no reason to rejoice and instead as they are darkened in their understanding, they consider what we read about in scripture, they consider the gospel to be futile. They just don't see any need of it because they love the darkness of light without God rather than the light that he brings. i me try to illustrate it this way. If all the lights went out and the sun no longer shined... We wouldn't be completely blind, right? Our eyes would adjust, right? Like when you flip off the lights suddenly, your eyes adjust over time. You can kind of see and make your way in the darkness for a while, right? Now, our eyes would adjust, and we'd be able to see and live for a time, but we wouldn't see the world around us or our loved ones or the things uh, that are beautiful in all of their glory, in all of their detail, in all of their splendor that the light allows them us to behold them in. They wouldn't gleam. They wouldn't glisten. They wouldn't sparkle. They wouldn't be seen in all of their brilliance and all of their dynamic because the lights are out. It's just shades of black. And if the sun no longer shined, eventually life would die. The world would grow colder and colder and colder until all that was left were the frozen remnants of a once vibrant life. On the path of futility, not only do we harden our hearts against God, but our minds and our thoughts become darkened towards the one who gives life and breath and being and beauty and virility and purpose. As a result of our ignorance, the ignorance that is in them and the darkening of their understanding, those without God operate out of the futility of their minds. They devote their thoughts to trivial things or meaningless diversions that would keep them from knowing God. Amusements like sports or movies or sitcoms or video games dull them toward the things of the Lord. Not that these things in and of themselves are evil, right? Right? There's nothing wrong with you memorizing, right, uh, sports stats for your favorite baseball team. But let's face it, in the eyes of God, he's not really going to care about that, right? The problem is when they become, they're set up as barriers or distractions to avoid or ignore the Lord. If that's the case, then they become evil. Because anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God is evil, The problem is found when your thoughts end at the activity or they are consumed by the activity rather than God. Or as one pastor said, pleasures and enjoyment are not illegitimate. When they become the focus of life, however, they distort and they corrupt. So the question becomes, how do your thoughts or how do your thoughts about God, maybe, compare to your thoughts about the things of this world? How about that favorite thing, that thing you hold up as most precious? How do your thoughts towards God compare to that? Better yet, what, what, if something happens to this thing that you are consumed with, this thing that you think about the most, if something happens to that, how does that affect your thoughts about God? Do you find yourself doubting and in despair? Do you question, you wonder Why? You, you, you lead to question God. Well, friends, that's his point. He says, be careful. You may have one foot already on the path of futility. The response is to take every thought captive and to see it in light of Christ. The eternal consequence of our hardened hearts and our futile minds is death and judgment. Verse 18 says, they were alienated. They were separated. They were estranged from the life of God. Those who do not belong to Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In their hardness, in their ignorance, in their darkness and futility, they were deceived into thinking that they could find life in their passions and in their desires only to find death and judgment. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says that they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, getting this having no hope and without God in the world. In their sin, God handed them over, according to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, to follow their lusts, to follow their passions, to follow their debased minds. Without any regard for truth, they have cut themselves off from the one thing, the only true thing that could give them life. It is a life that comes from God. But instead, they run the other way. They gladly place themselves under his just judgment, giving approval to those who practice the very same things. They are living as those who are dead, as those who are enslaved, as those who are condemned. And so God removes his restraining grace from them and gave them over to themselves. And the result of God handing them over Giving them over to the lust of their hearts and their dishonorable passions and their debased minds. When the path of futility reaches its end, the conclusion is reckless abandon, an insatiable desire for impure living. Verse 19 says that they have become callous. They've lost all sensitivity to what is right or wrong. They've lost the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment for their actions. They have thrown off all restraints. They lack all self-control. They lack any moral constitution, any discernment that would restrain them. And so they plunge headlong, face down into all kinds of degrading activities. They have given themselves up to sensuality. They abandon themselves to any corrupting sin. Because they've rejected the truth of God, they've given themselves over to selfish lusts, which they gladly and willfully pursued. You know, it's not like they're not wanting to do it. They're running headlong. And at the same time, they recognize it's wrong. At the same time, they understand it is both divine and self judgment. Sin makes absolutely no sense. (laughs) But without regard for self respect, without regard for the rights or feelings of others, without any sense of public decency, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They covet impurity. Now, when you hear the word impurity, don't think just unrestrained sexual behavior, but more broadly, impurity is any and every rebellious and excessive form of living. In greediness, they make impurity their practice. They make impurity their pursuit their work, their trade, their business, or to flip around some lyrics to a song that Rachel and Eric often sing together, impurity is their business, and business is good. Now, there's always a danger in quoting from movies, all right? So, giving you this warning, I I want you to hear me, but I want you to then turn the TV off when I'm done. Okay, But there's this scene from Pirates of the Caribbean, the only good one, the uh, Curse of the Black Pearl, that captures it well. Captain Barbossa is telling Elizabeth about the curse upon the treasure that they found. And he says, Buried in, an, in the island of the dead, that which cannot be found except by those who already know where it is. Which I love that, of like, okay, the island of the dead, found by those who know where it is, Dead. Find it we did, and there be the chest, and inside be the gold. And we took them all. We spent them and traded them and frittered them away for food and drink and pleasurable company. But the more we gave them away, the more we came to realize that drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths, and all the pleasurable company in the world could not slake our lust. We are cursed men, Miss Turner, compelled by greed we were but now we are consumed by it. Their curse had left them as the walking dead, always seeking to quench their every appetite, but never able to find true satisfaction. And the more and the more they indulged, the less and less they felt, the less satisfaction that occurred from it. The more they pursued it, the less they received. Turn the TV off, please. Now, if you're here as somebody who doesn't follow Christ, I mean, first of all, I just want to say I'm really, really glad you're here. I hope that you have questions and that you'll ask questions. We'd love to talk with you more about it. But I wonder how this passage strikes you, right? It's talking about you. I wonder if this seems harsh or overly negative. I mean, after all, you probably don't give way to every single selfish or sinful desire that you've ever desired to commit. You have a sense of decency or moral capability. You don't give yourself headlong into these things, right? Are you thinking that? I mean, if so, I just want to say that this passage is taken from the perspective of God, This is not the way that we see or view ourselves or the way that we see or view the world around us. This is how God views us. This is how God views the world. And he's warning us here of the dangers of rejecting him and trying to live our lives for pursuits that will come to nothing the very moment that we die. He's warning us of the ultimate dangers behind us living totally for ourselves without regard for him or for others, that there is death and judgment and in this life frustration over spending ourselves on things that we'll never ever be able to satisfy. I'm sure that you've seen this to a degree. I'm sure you've seen this in your life, right? That maybe, maybe you've desired a relationship. You wanted that relationship bad, and you went after it wildly because you were madly in love. But as you spent time in that relationship, you, your eyes became open to the reality that, that he was not who you thought he was, or she was not who you thought she was. Maybe you've given yourselves over in some way to, to pursuing success or sex or worldly pleasures, only to find them lacking or unable to really satisfy in the way that you hoped they would. You're always wanting more. Entertainments are never enough. And so you seek more and more and more. And you always have to find something. Pushing the boundaries uh, of, mor- of morals to find something that is exciting enough to satisfy you in the moment. But as soon as that moment is gone, the longing returns. And it's greater than ever before. And it seems like I've got to go one step further than I did before in order to satisfy it never able to end, never able to satisfy it truly. And the reason why you're never satisfied is because we, we try to find our satisfaction in the wrong things. We try to find our satisfactions in things that were never meant to ultimately satisfy us. They can be good things. They can be wonderful things. They can be God-given things. They are God-given things. But they're never meant to do what we're asking them to do. And they lead us away from the only one who truly can. There's only one way that we can truly bring delight and joy and satisfaction to our souls. There's only one way that we can receive life and reconciliation rather than death and condemnation. There's only one that, can, that has truly paid the penalty for our sin that has died so that we might be freed from that enslaving sin and he rose from the dead so that we might be freed for all eternity to find our soul's delight in him. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so turn from your sin and follow after him. Again, if you have any questions, we'd love to be able to talk with you. To my fellow brothers and sisters, those who are trusting in Christ, walking after him, seeking to live for his glory rather than their own, I hope that you see the deceptions and the dangers associated with following this path of futility. I hope you see where it's leading. I hope you see the peril of hardening your heart against God and saying no to Him. I hope you see the foolishness of setting your hearts and minds on the things of this world. I'm sure that you've seen people around you who have run down this path to their own destruction. Well, friends, don't follow. Know it's foolishness, because this is why we hold each other accountable this is why we practice church discipline to lovingly warn them of the dangers that await them if they continue heading down that road so how have you been hardening your hearts against the Lord are there areas in your life where you have continually been saying no to God how how has your mind stayed focused focused On things that would lead you away from God? What has been consuming your thoughts? What consumes your days? What consumes your life, your ambitions, your hopes? What's that one thing that you're just like, you know what? As long as I have this, then everything in the world is fine, but if I lose this, I don't know how I'm gonna go on. Are you alienating and separating yourselves from God and His people? Isolation leads directly to death and judgment, alienation from life that is in God. God intended for us to live in community with each other. God intended us for to, us to pursue him. And so for not doing that, we're heading in the opposite direction, death and judgment. Are your passions and desires driving you away from Christ? What are those? Identify those, confess those, repent of them. Seek reconciliation. Believe the gospel. I mean, if we are honest with ourselves, we have seen this in each of us. Friends, do not minimize your sin. Do not become callous. Do not darken your understanding of the things of God. Do not alienate yourself from the source of life. Do not remain on the path of futility. Instead, Follow the path of Christ. Now, what does it look like for us to follow the path of Christ? Well, as you can see, it's the exact opposite of the path of futility. All right? Paul says in verse 20, but that is not the way that you learn Christ. All right? So what does it mean to learn Christ? It means to entrust our hearts to Jesus, the faithful physician to surgically remove the cancer of sin. It means sitting and taking a seat at the school of Christ to learn from him and to follow our great teacher. And when we do that, hard hearts are replaced by soft, changing hearts. Darkened minds are renewed and enlightened by Christ. Death and judgment are replaced by life and reconciliation. Reckless abandon. Is traded for grateful obedience. If a hard heart says no to God, then a heart that has been changed by Christ says no to our old sinful self and yes to God. But here's the other thing it also says yes to our new identity in Christ. This is so important for us to get okay? It's not just a matter of self-denial or self-discipline. I have to say no to myself and yes to God. No, what it's saying is I'm saying yes to God and I'm saying yes to who I now am in Jesus and finding my satisfaction and finding my joy and finding my hope and finding my life in Him. I'm saying yes to that. The the one thing that's really going to satisfy my soul, I'm running headlong after that instead of that which brings death. And so it's not saying no to me, yes to God. It is saying no to my dead self, yes to God, yes to who I now am in Jesus. Guys, get that. Get that. It'll change the way you think about these ethical commands. Following him in the way that we were meant to live. By his grace, God has changed my heart, and I love him, so I obey him. And I read what Paul says. This I say, and I testify. I insist in the Lord, and I recognize this is from the Lord. This is his authoritative word for me. And so I need to trust Him. I need to submit to Him. I need to follow Him in this. I need to humble myself before Him because I know that God loves me and that He made me and He's taking care of me and I want to glorify Him. And so I stay off of that path of futility because I believe in Him and I trust what He says. I know that God is sovereign over all and for me to say no to Him is to tell a lie about His authority. I know that saying no to him and hardening my heart against him is the opposite of the life-transforming, heart-changing power of the gospel that has redeemed me. And so I say to God, yes, because I know who he is and because of what he has done for me. And so I learn Christ by trusting Christ, by submitting to Christ, even in the hard things, even in the difficult things, that I know are going to bring hurt and pain and hardship and struggle because I know he's right. And I say yes to God. Friends, do you see how it's tied to the gospel? Do you see how it's tied to God's nature? Let's keep going. Not only do I learn Christ by saying yes to God, but I learn Christ by renewing my mind. Rather than remaining in ignorance, this ignorance that is in me, or darkening my understanding, or frittering my thoughts away on meaningless, trivial things, I will seek to know Christ. And here's the amazing thing. God is already working that knowledge in us. Chapter 1, verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, that he is uniting all things in him. Chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, God has given us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He has enlightened the eyes of our hearts so that we may know the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. God has given us the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's what God is doing in us to renew our minds. And so because God is doing that, I'm going to study Christ. I'm going to learn Christ. I'm going to sit at his feet and learn from him. Rather than spending my time on useless information, I want to learn about him. And so I work hard. I study hard. I read the Bible. I read theology. I want to take every thought captive and I want to make it obedient to Christ. And when I find myself in those times where my thoughts are betraying me and they're telling me lies about God, rather than darkening my understanding, I want to seek to renew my mind by thinking right thoughts about God and right thoughts about this situation even as hard as it is in light of Him because I know He's right. He's right. Not me. He's right. And so I follow Him. I renew my mind by reminding myself who He is and what He has done for me. That He is for me. And so this situation, no matter how impossible it might be, is welling up for eternal glory. And I can do that because I know Him. He's revealed himself to me and continues to do so more and more. I refuse to live in the futility of my mind because to do so will tell lies about who God is. He is the source and giver of all truth and all knowledge. And I do so because to do so would say lies that thoughts spent on the world are better than truly knowing and truly living in an intimate relationship with Jesus and knowing that the world, what the world knows and thinking what the world thinks is somehow better than Christ and abiding in my new life in Him. So it change the way you think about thinking about Jesus. It ought to. And so I learned Christ. I learned Christ by saying yes to God and by renewing my mind with God's truth rather than the world's lies. And I learned Christ to have life and reconciliation. Friends, where the path of futility leads to death and judgment, the path of Christ leads to life and reconciliation. My soul receives life. I am reconciled to God and I am reconciled to God's people. And instead of being alienated from the life of God, I am now welcomed into the life of God. With God as my father and together with his children. And so I seek life and reconciliation, through prayer, through devotion, through community, through life spent on my father and his family. Rather than heading down that path of futility by alienating myself from God and his people, I will instead, because that tells lies about his love and his grace and his power to give life and to reconcile others to himself, I will no longer live in isolation, but I will seek to live a life of reconciliation and that gives hope to God, and his, well, not to God, but from God to his people, and I will seek to be a means a means of life and reconciliation to others who don't know him by sharing the gospel, but also by speaking the truth in love so as to build up the body in Christ, by repenting and confessing of the ways that I've sinned against my brothers and sisters, by forgiving those who have sinned against me, by eagerly maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, because God has given me life and reconciliation and I want to display that in my life. I want to display it for the world to see. And in our lives together, I want the world to see that we are different. And as we do that, friends, we receive more life. We are reconciled more and more and more until at last we are at home with Christ. And so I learned Christ. I learned Christ by having my heart changed, by saying yes to God. God. By renewing my mind with God's truth, by pursuing life and reconciliation that comes only from Him, and by obeying Him from a heart of gratitude, I am so grateful for what you've done, Lord. On the path of futility, one becomes callous. The more they sin, the more callous they become, even to the objects of their lust. But the one on the path, Christ becomes sensitive to his leading. They grow in wisdom, they grow in discernment and joy in the Lord and in a delight to do His will. The one on the path of futility give themselves over to sin. The one on the path to Christ gladly submits himself to Christ. The one on the path of futility has an insatiable, reckless desire for any and every sin. The one who has learned Christ finds his satisfaction in Christ. He is grateful for Christ and finds his contentment in Christ. The one on the path of futility lusts after every form of impurity. The one on the path of Christ longs for that which is pure. Boy, this, this ought to frame our understanding of passages like 1 Corinthians nine twenty through twenty three. One of these passages that we often try to use to kind of justify and see what we can get away with in the Christian life, right? Not that it's not framed by 1 Corinthians nine nineteen or ten thirty one through eleven one, but that's beside the point the pursuit of the Christian life is to never get enough of Christ so that I can figure out how I can get all there is in this life too. So many, so many times we treat it that way. I, I want to get enough of Jesus so that I can just make the most. I can maximize everything that I can get out of this life here and now. Take advantage of every indulgence, every hope, every, everything that this world has to offer. I want to enjoy that, but I, I just want enough of Jesus that I know that I'm good to do that. I'm seeking that which is permissible rather than that which is beneficial. It's not about indulging in what is permissible or being as much like the world as possible. It's about delighting in what is truly beneficial and longing for what is eternal because I know Christ and I'm blown away by all that he has done for me and all that he is doing in me and so I am content with all that he is giving me. I am grateful for all that I've received and I will gladly obey him because I know that what he has given for me, what he wants me to do is for my best. And I obey, not to earn forgiveness, but because I have forgiveness. And so rather than trying to get enough of Jesus so that I can go out and indulge in what I really love, his worldly pleasures, my sins, I gratefully obey because I want the world to know that Christ is better, that Jesus is better. That a life lived for the pursuit of every sin will only turn to rot. And that true and lasting joy is found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I obey because I remember who he is and just how much he has done for me. And I am utterly, utterly grateful. I want to spend my life delighting in him. Oh, friends, do not set your hopes on anything less than Jesus. Do not stoop so low. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now do you understand why our unity and why the purity of life, our holiness, our godliness matter? You see how it's connected to who God is and what he has done for us in Christ? I hope that you no longer see it as some burden. It is a joy for us to reflect the God who saved us. When we fail to follow, when we fail to obey, we're telling lies about God. We're telling lies about the gospel. We're telling lies about our salvation. You see why we're called to speak the truth in love and to build up the body of Christ, to pursue maturity in Christ together? Do You see why we exhort one another every day As long as it is called today, so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, because every day we make that choice in a million ways which path we're going to follow the path of futility or the path of Christ. Do you see why God and the church discipline? Now, friends, for the glory of Christ, do not live in impurity learn Christ let's pray oh heavenly father I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive this truth that we would be able to see ourselves rightly in light of Christ and his accomplishments for us that we would behold him as of infinite worth and desire to live lives that reflect his nature and his character and what he has done for us in the gospel. Lord, help us to remember that we don't save ourselves, that you don't judge us based upon a pass-fail of I'm a little better than the guy next to me, but your standard is Christ and you have given your standard Christ so that we might put on Christ and outlive for this world. Lord, may we see the futility of a life lived apart from Christ and the joy and the satisfaction and the delight and the hope of life with Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.